Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. My name is Victoria Heron and I'm hosting Are We Nearly There Yet? today as we meet the usual host, Professor Andrew Sherry. So shoes on the other foot this time, Andrew. You're in the hot seat. Um, And the podcasts are interesting because we're talking about people's journeys and I am sure people have wondered about yours um, as these podcasts have been developed. So we're going to ask a few questions of you today um, and hear a bit more about your adventures that have brought you to where you are right now. Now, Andrew is a special advisor at the UK's National Nuclear Laboratory and a research professor at the University of Manchester. You may know that he lives in Manchester with his wife, Sue, and has two grown-up girls. So welcome, Andrew, and thank you for sitting on the other side of the mic this afternoon. (laughs) Thank you, Victoria. I feel you're going to get your own back on me today. Yeah, it was a nervous laugh, that. I quite enjoyed the sound of that. This is a, a rare occasion. But let's look a little bit deeper than the surface of a LinkedIn profile or a Google entry. Um, and you grew up in South East London, although you do live in Manchester now, so we might talk about the North South divide in a bit. But tell me about the younger Andrew. Where was he at school? What was he like? Well, yeah, I, I grew up in South East London in Sydenham and Dulwich, near the ruins of the old Crystal Palace, which was sort of my playground. Mum and dad had come over from South Africa in the late 50s because of apartheid. They couldn't live with it. And my grandfather said to dad, it'll be the worst mistake you ever make. And um, it was the best thing they ever did. So that's where we grew up. Although we used to go out to South Africa every few years or so. At school, I went to school at Dulwich College. Mum had to work in a job she hated to earn enough money to send us to Dulwich College. I mean, I love Dulwich. I played sport. I did gymnastics, rugby, athletics. Each year had six classes sort of ranked from the brightest kids down to the thickest kids. Each class had about 25 people in it. And I was always in the lowest class. And if I got above 20th in a given year, I was happy. So I was, I was sort of known at school for sport, certainly not for academic excellence. Sport features in in the early part of thinking, and it's interesting that you mentioned academia. People will assume, Andrew, that you were the bright spark when they hear even the word professor. People assume an awful lot about that title. Um, do you did you, as a young person, realise that that your ambitions were somewhere else, but you couldn't actually find what they were or source them at that time? Did you know there was something more inside you at a very young age? I just didn't know. I didn't have a clue really what I enjoyed. I think I enjoyed sciences more than arts, although I did enjoy art and I did, you know, various um, various things with clay and all sorts of things when I was younger that I enjoyed. And mum was very artistic, but dad was an engineer. So I guess I had a bit of a mix of that. I loved music, absolutely loved music. I was absolutely sold on rock and roll so you know when I was going to concerts in the 70s it was people like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and all all that sort of thing and I played piano and boogie boogie piano and that sort of stuff but in terms of my future I honestly didn't have a clue I mean the expectation was we'd go to university and I do remember uh, at a particular parents evening mum and dad going in to see 
my chemistry teacher, who told them this was before O-levels. He said he won't get his chemistry O-level and don't get your hopes up. He's not going to make it to university. Well, mum and dad told me the first part of that, not the second part at the time. They said, you know, your teacher says you're not going to get your chemistry O-level. And that gave me a bit of a kick. And I thought, I am blooming going to get my chemistry O-level and I'll show him. And um, so I, I worked hard for that and I did get a grade B at O-level, which was, uh, you know, a marked improvement on what I was predicted to get. But then A-levels was maths, physics, chemistry, the sort of standard three, keep your options open. I thought I'd do physics at university. But to be honest, you know, I just didn't know how to work. It just didn't click with me at all. And I don't know why that is. Um I have suspected I might be dyslexic, although I've never been tested. My daughter's very dyslexic, so that's a possibility. But I think the structure of the way they taught at school, and particularly you were encouraged in what you were seen to be good at, and I was seen to be all right at sport. And so that's what I did. And I spent my time after school in the gymnasium or on the rugby pitch or trying to break a high jump record or a pole vault record and usually breaking a pole vault in the process. And I just thought I'd like to go to university because that was the only option really that I thought of. You went there and, and university is a big experience for everybody. But what did you learn about yourself at university? The parents have gone. They're still a bit of a distance. You're by yourself there. Uh, what did you reflect on at the time? Did you even reflect? Were you too busy having a good time? Um, yeah, I did get into university, but through university clearing. So I failed my chemistry A-level to no great surprise from my chemistry teacher. Um, and I did very badly in my maths and my physics. I came out with two grade Ds. Um, but Manchester offered me this strange subject of metallurgy, um, which I'd never heard of before. They sent me a load of stuff about it. I read it and I thought, I remember talking to dad, I thought, I said, I quite fancy this metallurgy. And he said to me, you can't even spell it. How are you going to do it? And <laughs> but, but actually, it was really good because when I got to university, I think there were two things that happened immediately. Firstly, I could see other people around me in the halls of residence working, not always going down to the pub or out for the evening, but they had work to do and they were studying. And I thought, oh, gosh, is that what we're meant to do with some of our evenings? So all of a sudden, I sort of started to learn to apply myself. I think the second thing I realized was that I think in pictures. I don't think in equations particularly well or in text particularly well, but I think in pictures. And metallurgy is the sort of subject where pictures really help because you can imagine crystals. I could imagine microstructures, what they look like under the microscope or even in three dimensions. And I could imagine phase diagrams and all the stuff they teach in metallurgy, but it was all very three dimensional, and all very pictorial. And so it sort of hooked me really. And I started to really enjoy it. And my, you know, I think my first year, I got a third in the exams. My second year, I got a two, two in the exams. My final year, I got a two, one in the exams. And so I was really engaging in it and I was enjoying it. And I was becoming curious. You know, I was asking questions. I was thinking about it and it was a slow process you know I was a sort of, sort of late developer in that sense you know people have been asking those sorts of questions at school where I've just been thinking about the late you know the next high jump I was going to do but at university I really it it just lit a spark in me and I enjoyed it I really enjoyed it and when I got the chance to do a PhD because I couldn't get a job there were no jobs at the time I jumped at it 
I jumped at it. And um, I always remember uh, an interview I had at Rolls-Royce because they were funding the PhD and they wanted to see who was this student they were going to support. And I went into this guy's office, a guy called David Driver, um, driver by name and driver by nature, they used to say about him. And he just asked me one question. He said, tell me how materials fail. And so I went through all the stuff that I've been taught about fracture and fracture mechanisms in materials under different conditions. And, and I drew pictures. It was all about the pictures and imagining in my mind what was happening in the material. And uh, in the end, I stayed on, did a PhD on single crystal turbine super alloys. And single crystals are lovely things to think about in 3D. So that worked really well. Yeah, it all fit, you know, sounds more attractive when you put it in pictures. And I think a lot of people whether they're a parent who listens to this or they're actually a younger person themselves, to hear that late development is an option. But not everybody knows early on. And then that we see somebody like you, successful on lots of levels. It's not always just mean in career, in a personal level, to hear that it can, you can find your way as you go along. It's perfectly legitimate. Um, it's not always what's expected of you at a certain age. And carry on, because you're a living example of, of using, I guess, tenacity and, and a bit of willpower um, and some peer pressure to say, get my head down and study, and the, the lights went on for you. Following all of the the, the university days, though, obviously work had to happen. Did it have to happen? You felt it was time to have a career. I don't know whether you know financially there was a driver there. Uh, people often, often don't ask that, but sometimes you got to earn money at, at some point. Um, and your first job was at the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority. What was the first day like for for, for you? Um, Andrew, you know, walking through um, a door or a spinning door? It was a spinning door that you had to walk the right way through, otherwise you would get stuck. <laughs> I never did get stuck. I remember it because it felt very serious. But I remember my first day because my line manager was away with work that day. And so he'd asked a couple of my colleagues to look after me. And one of them came to me with a, a journal paper and he said, you know, spend the day reading that. And I, I read, I looked at it and read it and it was just full of acronyms. It was full of uh, K this and KJ that and JIC and all sorts of acronyms that I just, I, I'd spend all the day running up and down the stairs asking him what these things meant. Um, and it was a sort of welcome into uh, this strange world of fracture mechanics and pressure vessel steels, because that's what, that's what we were looking at. We were looking at pressure vessel steel for size well C and what was going to be a fleet of pressurized water reactors in the UK originally. So we were looking at the material properties. It was the, the, the department was called engineering metallurgy and the purpose of the department was really to bend and break steel, but to understand when it bent and when it broke and measure the properties and be able to predict the structural integrity of a pressure vessel. And so that's what I was, so that's what I was looking at. And the other thing was that my line manager was really, really interested in computers and they were just coming in, desktop computers, I mean. And a lot of people were starting to get IBM computers on their desk. Dear David Libbury, uh, who was my first line manager, worked with for many years. He absolutely was sold on Apple Macintosh computers. So we, we had these little Mac Pluses with little screens on and we were, we were using those uh, to plot graphs and draw pictures and write reports and all of that sort of thing. And, and having written a graph plotting program for my PhD on a BBC microcomputer, I think he thought, oh, maybe this guy can help me, you know, further computers and computer simulation in the nuclear industry. And that's what I ended up working on. Okay. So how long did you actually stay there then at UK AEA? Was it quite some time? 
<laughs> I remember talking to someone and saying, um, five years for your first job, then you've got to move on. All my colleagues, when I had lunch with them on the first day, they were all saying, well, I've been here 20 years. I've been here 30 years. I've been here 35 years. And I did think, crikey, that's the whole of my life mapped out in front of me. I did actually stay there for 17 years and lived through the breakup of the UK AEA. And it was all organized into different bits of what was called AEA technology. And then our bit of AEA technology, which was consulting at that point, was sold to Serco and became Serco Assurance. I left Serco Assurance after effectively 17 years working in the same place with the same people, although my job had changed over that time. So I wasn't still doing exactly the same thing. So 17 years in, a, in an environment that has changed. But what about you as an individual through that? You would have experienced different pressures to your ones in university, you know, work pressures. Um, life might have changed for you externally as well on a personal level. How was Andrew evolving then? What, what, what were his um, sources of strength and inspiration once he got into the workplace? Well, I, I was faced with this question. I remember it distinctly because um, my line manager at the time said, um, you need to make a choice in your career. You need to either have a career in management or to stay technical. And this question bounced around my sort of world for probably two or three years. And I was increasingly put under pressure to apply for team leader roles and to move up that management chain. But I always found it a really hard question to answer because I really enjoyed doing technical work and leading technical programs. And I do remember when I was at a conference, seeing my old university professor, a guy called Professor Ted Smith, and we used to bump into each other at the same conferences because his research area was very similar to mine, which was nice. And so we'd, we'd get chatting. And I remember this one time in Indianapolis, he said to me, how's it going, Andrew? And I said, oh, well, I'm being asked to make a decision to have a career in management or stay technical. And I don't know what to do. And he said, well, what do you enjoy doing? And I said, well, I enjoy the technical work. And he said, you've got ages to go into management, you know, do what you enjoy. And that was his advice. And I made a conscious decision to do that. It felt right. And um, I remember going back and saying to our department head that I wasn't going to apply for any team leader roles because I enjoyed my technical work. And um, the result of that was I started, I think that gave me time to develop a track record, to write papers and actually to start to lead technical programs. So I took on the management of a large technical program for a particular customer. Um, but it wasn't just management, it was technical leadership. So I could add in new areas of research, I could balance the program technically, and it needed that technical understanding of what was important uh, to lead it. And um, for me, that was a really good decision. And it made a big difference. It did mean that my career sort of from the organization's perspective might have seen to sort of plateau for a bit, but actually for what was to come, it was actually the right thing. Yeah, not knowing at the time, obviously, though, but keeping set fair on your enjoyment course, which again, you know, wise words for people who, who sometimes might be encouraged healthily, if you like, to become management and climb the ladder. Not always is the way forward. Well, what happened to um, the the um, more athletic Andrew during this time? Had, had all of that um, sporty sherry disappeared by now? Was, um, was music still a big part of your life? Oh, yeah. Mu music was still a big part of my life. I was probably going to Oasis concerts and things by this point. Um, but no, the, the sport turned into playing squash um, and then turned into running at lunchtimes. So we had a squash league at UKAEA, which I used to play and I never won it. I came second one year. 
I remember playing once with the guy who actually used to win it. And I remember hearing this awful sound behind me during the squash match and his Achilles tendon had ruptured and he was in utter agony. And I had to drive him in his car, you know, to, to A&E and so on. And I'm ashamed to say in the back of my mind, I was thinking maybe I'll win it this week. Well, at least, at least you're honest. Yeah, no, well, in terms of, you know, you might not have been as aware of it back then, but, you know, I'm curious how you kept yourself mentally well during, you know, a busy job, a demanding technical role, but, you know, keeping exercise and, and, and doing other things like music and sport are really important. I used to go running every lunchtime. I used to have an internal rule. If I'm not busy at lunchtime, I will go running. So I used to run around Risley Moss. And used to love it until when I when I got back, you know, to work, people were starting to ask me if I was feeling all right. No, oh, good on you. Got to, got to keep the physical exercise going. It's really, really important. Um, I'll be curious where we are now and, and, and how you keep yourself uh, mentally well during the COVID times, which would be remiss of a podcast, uh, not to mention that's recorded uh, during this during the pandemic. So I, I do read from your history that from the experience you'd had at the UK AEA that uh, you went on and started a Royal Society Industry Fellowship with the University of Manchester. Um, To somebody like me, can you explain what that would involve then? Yeah, it was, again, I I blame Professor Ted Smith for this because he phoned me up one day, he'd heard that AEA technology was going to get sold to Serco and he phoned me up and he said, what's happening? You know, how are people feeling about all this change and stuff? And I sort of was relaxed about it, but he said, I'd have thought of coming back to the university to do research. And at the time I was really enjoying what I was doing. I was leading this big R and D program um, uh, and reshaping it and, and getting it, you know, on, on track. But I said, I would be interested, but not full time. So the Royal Society, um, run this scheme called the Industry Fellowship, which does two things. It either enables people in industry to spend time in university, or it enables university academics to spend time in industry. And the idea is that by mixing people up from both sides of the the divide, uh, you'll get some cross-fertilization. The research will become more applied and taken up and used in industry will make a positive difference. So I applied for one of these things, a lot of help from the university. And, uh, and, and, and the core of what I was going to do was to look at the effect of something called residual stresses. These are internal stresses in materials, usually around welds and things like that, and try and understand and do some experimental and some modeling work to, um, to be able to predict the effect of residual stresses on fracture. It's a big issue in our AGR reactors, actually. Um, And so I applied to do this thing. And um, there were two things that happened, really. The first was I had to be really creative about how I was going to make the money work because the Royal Society would pay your salary, but nothing else. So they wouldn't pay any overheads for your time. So I then had to work with, um, I think they were called British Energy at the time, you know, now EDF UK, who were funding me some work. Say, if I do this Royal Society fellowship, can I use some of the money that you would pay for my time to offset the loss of overheads. But what it means is you will get more of my time overall and you'll get input into the university. And um, they were very supportive of that creative scheme and as was um, Serco uh, at the time. But I didn't do it full time. I did it a third of my time. And I did it for five years, a third of my time. Um, I never gave up a third of my job though, I have to say, and that was a bit of learning. You can work above your capacity for a period, but actually it got pretty tough. 
uh, as I went through that. But that was giving me one step back into university research. And ultimately, that sort of led to the next step, I guess. Would that be then um, about putting that big foot step back into full time academia? Was it then, Andrew, which is, is a different discipline altogether? I do find it interesting sometimes that I think to myself when I, I, I observe you, it's almost as though you are bilingual, that uh, you can talk to every man about something very complex. But then you can switch and, and talk to um, the, the more knowledgeable or the academic minded people um, about the science and technology in a more far more detailed level. It's like almost beginners French and advanced level. Um, I don't know if you consciously switch from one to the other, um, but how was stepping into academia? Was that a challenge for you this time? It, it, it was a big challenge. And I, I, you know, it's interesting when you you're visiting at a university or doing a third of a job. Uh, in a university, it's very different from being on, fully on the inside. I'm sure it's the same with with organisations. You know, you have your, your mental picture of what it's going to be like when you work in that place. When you actually get there, it's very, very different. And, you know, when I think about it, what I was used to, I'd come from what was Circo at the time, where we had experienced people working in teams, delivering very, very large, complicated projects. I mean, they were, they were doing some brilliant stuff that was sort of first in the world kind of things, you know. And then you go to a university where people are measured on their individual performance completely. And so it's almost like if you look down a university corridor with offices down the side, each office is almost like a, a cottage industry in a strange sort of way, because the academic is there to prove themselves. Um, Equally, you're not working with experienced people, you're working with PhD students who were like me. So they've only just graduated, they're young, they're still learning about themselves, they haven't got all the tools that they're going to need. And so you're almost going back, it's a little bit like going down a snake on the ladder down to the start again, because you have to start teaching people, you know, you can't assume everybody knows how to, how to do this, these sorts of things. So it's really challenging and, and combined with which I was recruited to lead a, a centre for materials research that was actually funded by BNFL. They set up four university research alliances. And this particular one was the last one they'd set up. It had been running two years and it wasn't delivering either what the university wanted, which was an increase in their research income, or what BNFL wanted, which was not only an increase in research income, but an increase in people flowing into the industry. So I was recruited to sort of pick up the leadership uh, of that, which needed me to bring academics together and, and all pulling in the same direction. And somebody once said, you know, trying to get academics to collaborate when they're measured individually is like trying to herd cats. Um, but the thing is, if everybody wants the same thing, and in cats, it's usually a saucer of milk, they will all come together. And in this case, what everybody actually wanted was research funding to do the research they wanted to do. And what I was able to do, because I spent all that time in industry, was I knew what the materials challenges were. I knew who the people in industry were who had those challenges and also had the funding to resolve them. So what I was able to do was to help people focus on the right challenges, make connections into industry, the research councils love funding projects when they're co-funded by industry. And so together, we were actually able to start to increase funding and actually get the thing going. And it became a, a, a great success. But I do remember about a couple of months after I started, the head of school at the time phoning me up and saying, Andrew said, how are we going to get out of this contract? 
And that was a contract I'd been recruited to lead. At the end of my five years, we had these research targets and things. Our goal was, I think the NFL were investing two million pounds over five years. And our goal was to make 10 million pounds total value. Well, we made about 25 million after the five years. So we managed to, you know, blow the targets out of the water with a lot of work by a lot of people. And that center is still there and it's still a success. And it was all about the people actually, and, and working out how we're going to, how we're going to get these people together and all pull them in the same direction. The word collaboration obviously springs to mind, but when you were doing that, were you consciously aware of being um, a catalyst for drawing together people, looking at their drivers, or was it so natural you don't even recognize it? I think that I certainly brought a different approach. I knew that because I'd grown up through UKAEA being a research organization and becoming a commercial organization. So I knew how to cost projects. I knew how to put in contingency and, and worked fixed price contracts and all these sorts of things. I, I knew how to put my head in the, the head of a customer and to think about how do they see this? What do they need out of this program? And those sorts of almost soft skills, I suppose. I do remember thinking that we need to bring people together. We used to have weekly meetings um, at the university with, with the academics. And I would challenge them, particularly some of the young academics, about the proposals they were or were not writing. And I would give them, you know, I would challenge them because effectively I was funding their salaries because it, the funding for these new lectureships came out of the, the BNFL University Research Alliance. So, um, so yeah, it was a journey of learning, I think. It was a very, very steep learning curve and it was very, very hard, I remember. The other thing was, you know, academics, it's almost their hobby. So that means if they're interested in something, they'll really go for it. It also means that they're interested in something. They will work on it day, night, weekends, whenever. And, uh, you know, this, this idea of, you know, I work from nine till five and then I switch off. It just isn't there in academia. So I was getting emails all times of the day, night, weekend, um, and I was responding in kind. So I was becoming the sort of person that wakes up in the middle of the night and goes down and does their emails and writes the presentation for later that day and things like that. So it was pretty intense, but hugely rewarding as well. I mean, it's a fantastic opportunity, great research equipment, great people. And a lot of them have flown into the nuclear industry, which is sort of in part why we were there. A wealth of experience then, don't you know, from industry, you go into academia, like you said, you can sit yourself in other people's shoes far more easily. You know, um, I, I certainly am a big advocate of, of, of uh, moving around, put your you know, brave pants on and, and move around and scare yourself a little bit possibly. But was there any fear when you started directing the Dalton Nuclear Institute, which coincided with becoming a government advisor. How serious is that on the Nuclear Industry Council and the Nuclear Innovation Research Advisory Board? Are you sitting comfortably at this point with these roles or were you were thinking, pinching yourself, thinking, I'm the government advisor? I, I remember thinking after about four years in of leading the Materials Performance Centre, I, I sort of got this feeling that I'd sort of done what I was able to do there. And 
um, I was ready for a change in all honesty. And when the phone call came from the dean of the university to say, you know, I need to see you, I, I was wondering either what have I done wrong or what, what's the opportunity here? What he first asked me, to be honest, was uh, would I be head of the School of Materials? And to be perfectly honest, I really didn't want to do that. And then it turned out after a conversation with somebody else that actually the Dalton Nuclear Institute would need a new director. And so I went back to the dean and I said, I think there's a choice for me to move into the head of school or move into directing Dalton. I knew I had to do something and it was one of those two things. And given my nuclear experience, everybody I knew and know in the nuclear industry and my passion for nuclear power and, and you know, all that stuff, it was an easy decision for me. But when I got into directing Dalton, it was a whole new level because, you know, in, in the Materials Performance Centre, we were developing research in materials and we were developing research programmes at that sort of level. But in Dalton, you're now thinking about the country, you're thinking about national research infrastructure. You know, the Dalton Nuclear Institute had just won with Serco uh, and Battelle the contract to be the management um, consortium for the National Nuclear Laboratory. So all of a sudden, I was on the sort of management consortium board of the NNL, working with Paul Howarth and, and others, um, you know, there. Our facilities that we, we were building were funded in part by the university, but in part by the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. So all of a sudden, I'm managing a £20 million programme to build a new research facility in West Cumbria. And, and the university had been at this for about a, a year or 18 months, and it wasn't going well. And the NDA were about to you know, decide that this project was never going to happen sort of thing. So it was sort of out of the frying pan into the fire and big challenges. And then, you know, you get a call from Nancy Rothwell as the, the president, vice chancellor of the university to go and see her. And it's all about, you know, government want to invest in new nuclear manufacturing facilities. Um, we need to put a, a bid in for a nuclear advanced manufacturing research centre. So I remember one particular month, it was my first September and I knew at the end of that month, I had to have a credible bid into government for the Nuclear Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre. And I had to have got through the challenge of my final meeting with the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority to get our design of the Dalton Cumbrian facility approved. It was a real make or break month. That was that was quite intense, but it, it was hugely rewarding. And ultimately, we were building new facilities that people are still using today, creating new research centres that... that are still there today and new academic posts and things and you really felt that you were involved in something significant for the country. The government had started to think about nuclear as part of the energy mix again and the then government chief scientific advisor John Beddington was pulling together some people to advise him on what that new research and nuclear energy strategy should be. So um, as I was directing Dalton and knew people and knew something about this sort of thing, they invited me as one of a number of academics and industry people to be a part of those sorts of meetings down in one Victoria Street that we, we now know and love. More on a personal level, really, because you have those roles here and then you joined um, NNL as the first chief scientist and more recently as a special advisor. During this well, you know, the last five years, when you look in the mirror, I guess, if I can uh, imagine that, and you think back to the Andrew who took his first jobs through the spinning door um, at UK AEA as well. Do you ever think that I'm still the same guy or I'm a very different type of guy now? How does it feel now? That's a really interesting question. I do feel different, I think. I think I feel more confident than I did when I first went in. I think I feel comfortable that there's more I don't know than, than I do. 
still and I think I feel confident enough to ask people for help or ask questions if I'm unsure in fact I think I've learned that I need other people's advice and input into these sorts of big questions because it doesn't just come from any one person I want to make a positive difference you know I do work hard and I often wonder why and I think it's because I care and I'm interested and I feel like I want to make a positive contribution to the country I think that's what it is when I went through those doors of UKAA. All I wanted to do was to survive my first day, I think. Yeah. And it, I mean, in terms of the, the journey path, and, and like you said, you've more recently been at NNL and the, the special advisor. Do you often recognize the influence that you can have, how people regard and respect you? Is that something you're aware of? It's a very personal question. Um, but do you recognize the impact and influence you have? And do you, you know, is, is that something you, do you cherish that? Do you not even recognize it? I'm not sure I do recognise it, actually. I, I suspect, you know, you need time and perspective to see some of these things. I'm aware that people are very, very supportive generally to what we're trying to do. And I know that I can pick up the phone and, and most people will will feel they'll, they'll talk to me and give me, you know, the benefit of their thoughts and so on. So, for example, when we were looking at innovation in the nuclear industry I, I sort of recognized that we couldn't just talk to nuclear people so I was I was making contact with all sorts of people in different sectors who I'd never spoken to before and I was amazed by and whether it was me or whether it was the NNL or whether it was a chief scientist role or whatever it was I don't know but people were willing to come together and learn from each other and I learned an enormous amount out of that and that surprised me now did that have an impact we're certainly talking about innovation much more now than perhaps we were before. I mean, I still think there's a huge journey we've got to go on as a sector, and I'm committed to helping that. I think the other thing that I've learned is that there are, I've learned what really energizes me and what really doesn't energize me. And I kind of feel now that I can put my energy into a few things and hopefully make a bigger difference so you know I've said you know looking forward I really want to put my energy into I want to continue advising government because I think you know it's helpful um, to have a diverse set of perspectives in, in advising on policy and, and how policy is worked out in practice um, I will always want to do research and supervise research because I'm curious uh, and also because I like working with the next generation that's the third thing I want to put a lot more energy into the next generation and helping them through their journey to discover, you know, what are you good at? What are you not good at? What motivates you and what doesn't and finding their career path. So that's why in part we started these podcasts, you know, to talk about career journeys and encourage other people on theirs. Well, that was, you know, it was going to naturally possibly come out, you know, with all the learning experience you've had, you feel that a podcast is, is one way, obviously, to, to try and help other people who may feel, um, they're not the most academic or they might think in words and not pictures. They may en enjoy something completely different, but you don't have to at 18 or 21 have found your way is what we're hearing from you. You can continue and opportunities will come towards you with the right attitude is, is kind of the sense that I hear. It wasn't a mapped out plan with, um, with your parents. You've allowed the world to come and present opportunities to you and be open to them. Would that be a fair assessment? I remember when I was at UKAA, somebody shared a little paper with me and it was there was a line in this paper which really struck me at the time. And the line was chance favours the prepared mind, which sounds like a funny little saying. Basically, what it means is if people are looking for opportunity, they will find it. If people aren't looking for opportunity, they won't even notice it when it hits them in the face sort of thing. And I'm fortunate in that I'm quite a sort of optimistic person and I like change and I like opportunity. 
So I am honestly always looking out for the next thing. Some people, you know, might say that, you know, I'm perhaps a little bit too quick sometimes to um, to grab the next shiny thing that I spot. Um, but it keeps me excited and it keeps me energized, you know. Um, uh, and, and it also means, you know, the career journey hasn't been mapped out and there's probably not that, you know, number of some people, but not many people spend time in industry, spend time in academia and then time in industry. And it is a challenge and it's not easy. It's not easy. The cultural impact in each, each change is enormous and you have to go up a very steep learning curve, but it's fun and it enriches you, I think. Absolutely. And in terms of, you know, you often ask the question of people you interview, if you looked back and gave one piece of advice, what to your younger self, what would that be? Uh, but I also think combined in that, the question now would be, especially a younger person, possibly in, 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 in COVID times, who even, they've even called sometimes the lost generation, which is a rather sad term, you know, bearing in mind, you know, the, the, the challenges, the steep learning curves, what would that piece of advice be to a younger person in today's climate, if, if they were kind of taking a piece of advice from Professor Andrew Sherry? I've answered this question once before in a podcast, and I think it's still the same. So I'll give the same answer. It's all about people. Whatever you do, wherever you go, even in lockdown, thank goodness for Zoom and Microsoft Teams, because at least you can see people's faces. But it is all about how you relate and engage with other people who, who are very different to yourself and finding and learning those soft skills, I suppose, to connect with you know, I'm a, I'm a very broad brush person, but I work with people who are very detailed. I'm not a sort of out and out lead, but I work with other people who are, or, you know, these different sort of Myers-Briggs or colours or whatever we use. And finding ways and learning to engage with people in the right way and build relationships, you know, more than just working relationships, actually, build good relationships with people just makes a huge difference. And actually, those relationships create opportunities. You know, if I hadn't met Ted Smith at those conferences and built a relationship you know I, I, we became friends you know I, I was with him as he died and I prayed with him as he died and I've still got his handwritten notes when I cleared out his office of his first lecture to me you know and so and but he had an enormous impact on my life and that was somebody I was I could call a friend so those relationships are really important and finding ways to build them and, and learn from other people I'd say is the big the big lesson for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, personality rather than issues, you know, try and thrive on that is, is, is what I'm hearing. And I know that you certainly do do that and, and keeping um, yourself energized, as you said. I mean, I know that uh, music continued to feature as you've gone through your journey. Um, I know you've got faith as well that, that keeps you um, a compass, a direction as well. Um, I think as people listen, obviously, um, the, the your career is well documented. Um, People, because you're supersonable, probably do know about you, probably, because you share, you share about yourself and your interests. And there was just something uh, recently, there's um, something that I wrote down, which kind of, I know the podcast is me talking to interviewing you, but uh, there's just something I read that you sent recently with a, a, a quote here was, um, be who you are made to be and discover what you are made to do. Thought, you know, when you're meant to read something at the right time, and, and I read that 24 hours ago and the podcast isn't about me or it's all about you. But I would say you've presented that to me in those 24 hours. And there's that little action has just helped me rethink about where I am just this very day, actually. 
So if anybody's just heard that and wants to re rewind it in old-fashioned terms and re-listen to it, there's a lot of depth in that one statement. So I also thank you, you, Andrew, for sharing that, 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 that little quote there um, in the last 24 hours to me. Thank you for giving us the time to hear more about you. It's a bit of a cheat only having, you know, about 40 minutes because we could cover a lot longer uh, and there's lots more that, that you could share with people. And there may be an opportunity to do that in another channel at another time. But uh, thank you for letting me sit in the hot seat. I've been very kind to you. I know I have. Um, <laughs> too kind, I think. <laughs> I have been a little too kind, possibly. But um, I want to make sure that you stay my friend and that you'll ask me to do something again. <laughs> Always your friend, Victoria. So thank you very much, Professor Andrew Sherry, for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you